WebmasterRadio.fm has compressed thousands of podcasts and all of our radio shows into the ultimate internet marketer's knowledge base. Introducing the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app. Absolutely free and now available for iPhone and Android users. Listen to our live broadcast at the push of a button or access our complete archive of shows past and present like SEO 101, Affiliate Buds, The Shoe Money Show, The Daily Searchcast, and so much more. Download it from the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store today. Business is changing, and new marketing avenues are opening up every day. WebmasterRadio.fm presents a show that brings you the innovators and trendsetters, taking us to a new age of marketing, media, and social business strategy. Welcome to Market Edge with Larry Weber. Get ready to hear perspectives on technology and integrated communications that will help you gain insight into the unique opportunities and challenges facing marketers and brands today. Now, please welcome our host, a globally known expert in PR and marketing, with more than three decades of experience and best-selling author, the host of Market Edge, Larry Weber. Hi, everyone. Larry Weber, and welcome to Market Edge. Uh, today, we're going to have a great show lined up with Bill Simon. Bill is a sought-after speaker and recognized authority on technology, trends, and management. He lives just outside Las Vegas and consults to companies on how to optimize their use of technology and has written six books. His most recent, The Visual Organization, we'll be talking about today. I think I have a few questions for some of his past books, too. His contributions have been featured in Harvard Business Review, CNN, Inc., The New York Times, Wired, NBC, CNBC, HuffPo, Fast Company, ABCNews.com, and Forbes.com, Businessweek, and ReadWriteWeb, among many other high-profile media outlets. He's a well-educated guy, Carnegie Mellon and Cornell, and uh, I count him as a, as a great colleague, especially as we all move forward in this frontier of new technology. Phil, great to have you on the show. Hey, Larry. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Hey, Phil. For those unfamiliar with your work, and I hope there's not many people out there in the audience that are, could you provide just some details about your background and how you became such a recognized authority on the future of technology and sort of this next wave of computing? Sure, Larry. I've been working around technology for most of my professional career. As you mentioned, I went to Carnegie Mellon. That was a very tech-heavy school, so I was always familiar with a computer and comfortable in front of one. And after a number of years of consulting, I wound up writing my first book, Why New Systems Fail. I joke with people that if I didn't write that book, I would have needed to see a shrink. I worked on many failed IT projects in my career and kind of got the writing bug and and churned out five more books and uh, more blog posts and articles than I could count. And I enjoy this nexus of technology, data, uh, management, and people. And that's kind of where I, I put myself. I don't have the background of a proper techie. And I like to think that I can explain things to people in English, which unfortunately, uh, as we both have seen, is a skill that many people lack. That's for sure. Um, we read that you took your first IT job back in 1998, where you taught yourself a magnitude of software programs. But with the World Wide Web and technology being in its infancy, did you predict the industry being as operational as it's become now? 
I've learned uh, not to predict too often. I'm the guy who bought Apple at 675 a share and promptly went it down to 375. But I knew that the web was a big deal. In fact, a friend of mine recently remarked that at Cornell back in 1995, when we got access to what was then, as you know, a very primitive web, Larry, he said that I was all uh, <laughs> all agog over it and all the potential for just being able to register for your classes at midnight as opposed to waiting on lines like I used to do when I went to um, undergrad. So I'd like to think that I recognize at some level the potential, but I'm not smart enough to have invested in companies like Apple and Yahoo at very small numbers. Otherwise, I'd be independently wealthy and sitting on an island somewhere. <laughs> uh, how do you? What's your view of sort of how the the web has evolved? You know, I was with, uh, you know, might as well name drop since I helped him launch HTML, but I was with Tim Berners-Lee or Sir Tim a few weeks back for breakfast and. Uh, He's a little frustrated that it hasn't become a little more democratized and a little more advanced uh, over the last 25 years. What's your view of, of, of the web's uh, evolution? It's been amazing, Larry. I remember when websites were basically glorified brochures and then Amazon and, and eBay and Yahoo introduced very rudimentary e-commerce. Now the web is, is such a vast place and I think that it's become smarter, more semantic, as I write about in a couple of my books. Uh, the we have search engines are getting a lot more intelligent, and if you're searching for something very basic, um, but you mean something else, we're getting a lot better at making those associations, and the last two books have addressed big data as in way to, ways to understand it. Uh, if anything, I'd argue that the web is very overwhelming. It's very difficult to consume content, and that's why curation, uh, as you know, is such a big deal. No one is hurting for content. That's one of the challenges if you're writing books or giving podcasts. There's just so much out there. I remember when you used to search for things and not get what you wanted. Now I can't possibly keep up with every forget book or, or podcast with every blog post that I ought to be reading. Uh, for that reason, I'm a big fan of tools like Hootsuite, which let me segment Twitter and, and LinkedIn and Facebook into digestible columns because if you're going to Twitter um, and many people have told this to me, said, I don't understand Twitter. It looks like I'm looking at just some massive feed. I said, you're absolutely right. That's why I don't really use the native Twitter application. I use something that helped me segment it into sports or news or technology or, or personal mentions, which, of course, we're all interested in. So it's 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 at times overwhelming, but it, it obviously helps with the research. As, as, as an author yourself, you know that the web has made writing, I would argue, easier, but not easy. Yeah, I agree. We'll have to get into talking a little bit about the uh, your, your latest book and the impact on on everything we're doing, including search around you know this this march toward visualization, where there's actually less and less text, and um, and and what that means to the way we actually manage this uh, this huge tsunami of of data and information that's coming at us. Yes, it's. Uh... Book, it's certainly book-worthy. I feel like the other books by Stephen Few and Edward Tufte and, and Nathan Yao and others addressed more of the theory of visualization, what's the right way to do a bar chart or a heat map or a tree map. And, and my book, I think, is the first, to my knowledge at least, that looks at what actual companies are doing vis-a-vis -vis visualizing what we affectionately call big data. Yeah. The, um, you know, speaking of, before I be going to some of the data and analytics stuff that you're so expert on and in your new book. I want to go back to uh, one of your other books about, you know, the era of the platform, which I actually found stunning. I just thought it was, you know, just the perfect timing and, and description of what was happening. 
And I was reminded of the book uh, this week when I was having a discussion in our London office about who is really fighting for the true heart and soul, or, or more importantly, the soul of the Internet. And I had to argue it was two platform companies, Google and Amazon. And with the Amazon's announcement of, of Fire, uh, their mm-hmm. smart, and with Apple, I think, becoming more of a fashion company and less a technology company, but I'd love you to hear your uh, point of view on that. Uh, could, you, could you talk about, you know, the, the different platform companies, Facebook, et cetera, and where you see them today, and, and do you think it's a galactic fight, or do you think there's a place for all of them? Yes and yes. It certainly <laughs> is a fight. We're seeing a lot of competition, and in the book, I write about frenemies, and I appreciate your, your kind, word, kind words on the book, Larry. We, we see how, um, what's it, the old Stalin quote, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We might see right. how uh, Microsoft is the preferred search engine on Yahoo. I'm sorry, on uh, the iPhone. But that's only to get back at Google. But Google had to be on iPhone because the Apple Maps application, I guess two years ago now, was so terrible that people were really starting to get angry and, and credit Tim Cook for realizing that they had a substandard app. To get back to one of your earlier questions on who's fighting for the soul of the Internet, that, that's a great question we could talk about over beer sometime. I'd certainly argue that Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and other companies are fighting for our wallets. <laughs> it's uh, interesting when you look at the announcement of the Amazon Fire phone, and Bezos has said this many times about many different products, we don't want to make money when we sell you the product, we want to make you. We want to make money when you use the product. So that's why Amazon historically has sold products at or below cost, just to get you kind of locked into their platform. I remember a friend of mine, Adrian Ott, had served as sort of a surrogate editor for the age of the platform. And in her book, The 24-Hour Customer, she threw out a stat that I found fascinating. And it was something like only 10% of all people change banks every year. Now, you may not be happy with the web application or the, uh, the smartphone application. You may not be happy with fees or rates. But changing your bank for all of your life is actually not easy to do. And that fact is not lost on these companies. Yes, I can search Google or I can search Bing or DuckDuckGo or any number of different search engines. But if I've got my email on Gmail, that's not easy to port over someplace else, and that's by design. So these companies understand, I don't want to call it consumer laziness, but it's stickiness for lack of a better term. So I do think there's a place for all of these companies, but all in different ways. I don't think that Amazon and Facebook are really going head-to-head on a lot of different things. And even in certain areas, Apple and, and Google aren't really touching each other's stuff but they are often enemies and often friends. It just depends on the day. Uh, it's funny you bring up about the bank. I was sitting with my um, older daughter who graduated last year from a Ivy League school, and, and she's living at home saving money right now. But she um, uh, was uh, you know, depositing a paper check that she had gotten from uh, one of her grandmothers and um, we started talking, and I said, oh, have you ever visited the branch? And she said, you know, Dad, I've never been in my bank. And I was mm. like, you know, and, and I was just fascinated. And then that led to a, a behavioral comment that before we get into some of the data questions, I, I wanted to just share with you and the audience is uh, my daughter and I decided to, uh, to watch one show uh, a week since she was back home, and we picked this show, The Voice. And uh, anyway, that doesn't matter. But I was—I used would sit down and I 
would have my iPad or my iPhone next to me, and I'd watch the show. Now my daughter would sit down, and um, she had her laptop open doing some work. She was also shopping on Lulu. Uh, Lulu also had a Facebook application that she could share before she bought things. She could share things with her friends and get their opinions. Then she would tweet about what a mistake the judge just made uh, on the show and have a glass of wine, and she was perfectly calm. And then even because Lulu had her phone number, she got texted an offer that since she bought two sundresses, they would give her a third for half price. And I was just amazed that how fast behavior is changing. Comment? No argument here. There's, uh, if I worked for the um, head of a cable company, I would be absolutely paranoid. There aren't a lot of millennials who are paying for cable. We're so used right. to watching what we want, when we want, and Netflix and other companies have spearheaded that. Uh, it's a very turbulent time, so it's, I'm old enough to remember, like you, and watching TV was pretty much a one-screen experience. Now it's a multi-screen experience. Um, you know, speaking of what companies can do, um, and not cable companies, I mean just regular, normal companies, with this shift uh, to everything digital, uh, with unstructured data like conversations on social media, and data that's ultimately going to be coming not just from us and other individuals, but from sensors and, you know, the Internet of Things. You know, what's a company to do um, to, to really take advantage of all of uh, this data, and, and how do you turn it into actionable stuff? Well, those are big questions, but I would argue it starts, Larry, with the recognition that data matters. One of my favorite quotes from the book is from Jim Barksdale, who said, if we have data, let's use data. If we only have opinions, let's use mine. You and I are old enough to know that at plenty of companies, people want what they want when they want it, even if the data would suggest otherwise. Now, look, no one's saying here that we ought to use data for everything. I remember Steve Jobs would famously reject focus groups because he wanted to tell customers what they want, or even going back well beyond that. I think it was the Henry Ford quote, ask customers what they want, and they'd say a bigger horse. So there is, I, I believe, the opportunity for people to define a market, but that's not always successful. Companies like Microsoft have historically struggled trying to take customers in a different direction. Just look at the recent decision to put back the start button on Windows 8.1. It was so revolutionary for Microsoft to remove the start button, but people didn't want that. So it takes a very special kind of leader in company to redefine things. but. You're right. It, it, we're going to generate more and more data as individuals to say nothing of sensors that are passively generating information. There's a reason that Google paid $3 billion for Nest as a thermostat company. No, no people typically thought about thermostats as generating data and using that data to provide an optimal living experience. So we ain't seen nothing yet. And to answer your question about how companies can get their arms around this, I'd argue that visualization, as someone pointed out in a blog post a couple months ago, is really the front end for big data. Most people aren't techies. They don't go and configure Hadoop and set up clusters and nodes. That's important, but most people like you and me are executives or business users. We're not necessarily going to roll up our sleeves and write code. So I would argue that visualization is becoming really important. That's certainly one of the reasons that I chose to write the book. We're going to go more deeply into, uh, into that book, uh, The Visual Organization, after our break. Um, you're listening to Market Edge uh, with Larry Weber and today's guest, Phil Simon, uh, one of the great thinkers in the digital age. We'll be back in a moment.
Market Edge will return in just a moment. InternetMarketingNinjas.com is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled Internet Marketing Ninjas. Disavow documents, reconsideration requests, Panda and Penguin penalties. Let our superior SEO ninjas confront all of your link-related issues. The Internet Marketing Ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise, content creation, authorship, link building, PPC, and more. Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at internetmarketingninjas.com. Guys, are you suffering from FD, fulfillment dysfunction? Let MoldingBox.com's online portal system for inventory, tracking, and returns perform for you. We have the enormous tools you need for complete warehousing, shipping, and handling of all your packages, no matter the size or shape, directly to your customers. MoldingBox.com can also fulfill all your nourishing, nutraceutical, and smooth skincare product desires, including green coffee and Garcinia on demand. Plus, let our in-house printing and CD, DVD manufacturing help you enlarge and maximize your coaching and business opportunity potential. We do everything. Fulfillment, shipping, tracking, inside and out, and all in one place. Moldingbox.com. It's shipping made sexy. As a business owner, you labor for the love of it, and you don't always have time to worry about your website. With GoDaddy Managed WordPress, you don't have to. Simply create your WordPress site or migrate an existing site. GoDaddy will handle the hosting, setup, backups, and security, and keep your site running at blazing speed so you can share your passion with your customers online. Visit GoDaddy.com and enter code MANAGED to get managed WordPress for $1 a month, plus a free domain. Some limitations apply. See website for details. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. WebmasterRadio.fm presents CEO Coach, a show custom-built to give you everything you need to build your business on the web. Your CEO Coach will break down the art of business development from the ground up. CEO Coach, on demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. We're back with more Market Edge, bringing you the best and brightest voices in digital marketing, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Once again, here's Larry Weber. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Market Edge. Larry Weber here with Phil Simon and a great conversation about all things digital. Uh, He's a well-known speaker and recognized authority on technology trends and management, and he has, believe it or not, his sixth book out, and he is still a young man, by the way. Um, <laughs> at least he looks like a young man. Uh, from, from your new book, Phil, The Visual Organization, and I recommend everybody pick it up, you discuss how to create an organization around visualization. 
Can you at least step back a minute and explain what you mean by visualization and then why you think it's so important for the future success of an enterprise? Sure. Uh, again, this is certainly not the first book on data visualization. When I was 19 at Carnegie Mellon in sophomore year, as I read about the book, the professor gave us the classic book by Edward Tufty, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information, or shorter, VDQI. And I remember being amazed at how simply you could manipulate how a stock looked by tweaking the X and the Y axes. And to offer a proper, proper definition, it's really not that hard. Data viz is simply the representation of information in a graphical form. And that can take any number of different ways. It could be a, a pie chart or a bar map, um, a bar chart or a, a heat map or a tree map. But in the book, I write about the importance of creating not just these static standalone tools that people use once a quarter to present to their management, but really interactive tools that people use on a daily basis to understand what's going on ask better questions, and ultimately make better business decisions. And in the book, I don't want to talk about it at a, in an abstract level. I cover companies like Autodesk and Netflix and the University of Texas that are creating tools and then having your everyday employee, as we talked about before, use those tools. So there's no formula. There's no checklist for becoming a visual organization. But I would argue that in this era of big data, it's never become more important for us to do that. If you look at data in just a raw form in, in a spreadsheet or, or just a log, it's really difficult to understand what's going on. Look, if you've got three sales from three different clients, that's not that hard to visualize. But what if you have three million sales from 35,000 different clients? Well, it, you're, you probably want to visualize it to get a sense of which products are selling where, when, who's your best customer, how is that trending? And the tools now have really progressed to the point at which you don't need to be a proper techie to use them. I write about tools like D3 or Tableau or many, many other tools out there that you can try for free because they're open source or they're on a freemium model and just start playing with data and see what you'll find. Uh, in the book, I argue that that's never been more important. The, um, you know, I was, uh, I was very intrigued with the, some of the case studies you're sort of mentioning, but especially sort of how you mentioned how Netflix, Wedgies, and eBay are sort of setting themselves apart with data visualization. Might you go a little bit uh, for our audience's sake um, on, on a couple of those companies, uh, on why they're doing it so well? Yeah. Netflix does some amazing things. I actually, as part of my book tour, spoke at Netflix headquarters in Los Gatos, California, and it's amazing to me, Larry. They have data visualizations on the wall. They want a tech Emmy. Forget the House of Cards Emmy with Kevin Spacey. They want a technology Emmy for their use of data and technology. And Netflix does many, many things, most of which they wouldn't tell me because it's proprietary. But to their credit, they said, if it's out there, we're not going to stop you from using it. One of which is that Netflix quantifies the cover imagery on all of their titles, their TV shows, their movies. They know that, let's say you mentioned you watch TV with your daughter. Maybe your daughter has a penchant for orange comedies and they'd recommend the rest of the development or orange is the new black. But for your daughter has no preference for dramas or for documentaries. And that's just one of many, many different pieces of information that Netflix uses. There was an article in The Hollywood Reporter, I believe, that came out a couple weeks after my book had been released, essentially proving that Netflix keeps around 77,000 different sub-genres of movies. And they're incredibly granular. They're things like evil kid horror movies from the, from the 1980s. I mean, they are as specific as possible 
and they base that on not only data that they track on who's streaming what and when, but they also do two things that I think would behoove all of the listeners today. Number one, Netflix generates additional data by paying people to watch movies. Computers can't do everything. A computer can't assess if a movie is suspenseful. So Netflix will pay people after three days of training to watch movies and grade them, not just did you like it or not, but according to very specific criteria, how suspenseful is it, just as an example. And Netflix also purchases an extensive amount of third-party data and metadata, which is just data about data, from firms like Nielsen, the global information services firm. So even though Netflix generates just a boatload of data, I mean, the company is responsible for one-third of all U.S. nighttime internet traffic, an astonishing number. Netflix realizes that in order to keep you happy as a subscriber, it needs to use more data. Think about it. You only pay eight, nine bucks a month for Netflix. You're not locked into a two-month contract. If you don't like it, you leave. The only way for Netflix to keep you coming back is to provide relevant content. And when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of shows or movies, that's a lot easier said than done. That's Netflix. At the other end of the spectrum, I write about a six-person startup here in Las Vegas called Wedgies, a social polling company. And even though they have a fraction of Netflix's financial and human resources and data, Wedgies is able to integrate data visualization not only into its front-end product, the thing that consumers see, but behind the scenes, they use Google Analytics and they've created some data viz tools to help them understand their business. So those are two poles, if you like. There are many companies that fall in between. I would suspect that most listeners today are closer to a six-person startup than to a $28 billion company with 48 million customers like Netflix. But I did that on purpose to show that you don't need to be a company the size of Netflix to become a visual organization. How about eBay? I just wanted to give a shout-out since John Donahoe is a friend and he's the, the CEO of eBay and, and supported my recent book, The Digital Marketer. And, and they seem to be doing quite well. What do you, do you write about? It? Yeah, they, uh, I spoke at eBay as well the first time at headquarters, and it was amazing. I mean, that was, I'm old enough to remember the dot-com boom. That was one of the first disruptive companies. And eBay has created and uses software that effectively simulates what eBay.com would be as a brick-and-mortar store. So you can see customers moving through the virtual aisles, so to speak. Totally. Um, you know, alongside speaking about technology and writing your books and all this, you do consult to companies as well. I'd like to go just a little bit on the negative side right now. What Do you see any common failures that these companies are making in the utilization of new technologies and data and analytics that are that might be some of the pitfalls that could be avoided just from your observation? Oh, we could have a very long conversation about that. But at a high level, with regard to big data, there's a lack of clarity. Uh, unlike, say, traditional customer relationship management or enterprise resource planning software, uh, big data is still kind of amorphous. It's still kind of new. There are companies, as I write about in the age of the platform, like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, that do amazing things with data, but those companies are intentionally opaque. Uh, Bezos, the other day, wouldn't even announce how many Amazon Prime customers there are. Trust me, he knows that number. He just chooses not to disclose it. Um, so many companies don't know how to get started, or they'll dismiss it, or they'll listen to software vendors, and those vendors are often confusing them. Because, as you know, we live in a world of SEO and social media. Many software vendors are trying to get out their message. And I think it's very understandable that CXOs don't know what they're buying. And if you don't know what you're buying, 
how are you possibly going to be able to assess whether or not it's effective? And let's be honest here, as you know, many companies had atrocious batting averages with regard to implementing those much better understood systems like BI or CRP, uh, CRM or ERP. So I understand the lack of adoption of these new technologies. I'd also argue, however, that now is precisely the time that you could put some distance between yourself and your competition. So hopefully that's where someone like I come in, whether, whether it's speaking or consulting or writing, and help them make better decisions, but also to have really realistic expectations. One of my biggest pet peeves is this notion of an ROI, and we will implement Hadoop or a DataViz tool, and we'll have a 20.2% ROI. I just think that at best, those are what they call swags, strategic wild-ass guesses. They're typically only understood in hindsight, and even then, it's 90% art and 10% science, but don't get me on my uh, soapbox here. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we, I mean, we could have a whole separate show on that topic, but, you know, um, one of the, the conversations that seems to be starting to, to catch some steam is this idea that, that IT itself is sort of bifurcating, that there's sort of a piece of IT that's always going to remain in sort of internal or infrastructure around security and energy savings and, you know, uh, device uh, synchronicity. You can go on and on. But the other side is moving to... Uh, to C-level people that maybe don't have any experience in buying software or technology to help them get closer to their customers or understand their customers' data better or create content that's more impactful for the customer experience. And, you know, a lot of these senior people, maybe a CMO who actually majored in history or English and didn't know where to go for a job, what... What's your take on that sort of discussion where the the purchase of more and more, you know, advanced software and data analytics software is is moving to non-technical people? Oh, you're right. It's absolutely been a move and a shift. Um, I'm old enough to remember that the proper role of IT, almost universally, Larry, was viewed as the gatekeeper of information. And now with the rise of cloud computing, IT's role has to change, and I'm certainly not the only person who feels this way. Tom Redman on Harvard Business Review and, and Tom Davenport have written exclusively about this new role for IT. Uh, think about it. We live in this era of BYOD, bring your own device. You can get people running at these companies without even provisioning for them a tablet or a smartphone because they already have something. Now that is a huge security risk, and the role for IT with regard to security, I think, has never been more important. Just turn on the news and you'll see the, the eBay hack or the LinkedIn hack or the Target hack. Those are all legitimate issues. But IT's role needs to change because of software as a service, cloud computing, open source software. And I write about this in a couple of my books. You no longer need to have this two-year waterfall methodology in which there are millions of dollars spent on software licenses, support, and consultants like me. Then you get to actually use the software. You can be up and running with many, many different tools within the hour. Um, now, it may just be on a permanent basis, and you still may have to customize it, load your data, et cetera, et cetera, but you can definitely date before you get married. That's a lot different than 15 years ago when I first started off in enterprise IT. That's good advice. You know, most of our audience here is somewhat related to marketing or customer centricity, and, um, you know, they're, they're, they need to reach out to uh, people like you and read the books to see really what is the new toolbox and how do we use that new toolbox and 
realize that there is a new toolbox. Yeah, the uh, the quote from uh, one of my favorite Rush songs: uh, "Changes, uh, changes aren't permanent, but changes." What's true today may not be true in, in two to three years. And in the book, I write about the dangers of a set it and forget it mentality. Uh, no longer can you say that we have our master dashboard, our report, and it gives us everything that we need. And five years later, that'll be true. Uh, I remember three or four years ago, Larry, when companies started to get their arms around social data from LinkedIn or Facebook or uh, Twitter. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, Pinterest started blowing up and people said, really, I have to worry about this as well. Well, look at Pinterest's engagement numbers. It's not worth $10 billion with investors like Mark Andreessen by accident. Pinterest may not matter for your business, but if you ignore it, you do so at your own peril. There may be very valuable data there that could help you identify who some of your most influential customers are. Absolutely. Hey, we're winding down and I can't believe this half hour has gone this quickly, but you know, Bill, you know, which companies do you see really paving the way for big data and analytics and are starting to set themselves apart? Now, you must mention some in the book, I, I believe I recall, but you know, just for our listeners, which come top of mind? I mean, certainly the, the big four, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, just because they aren't in the book doesn't mean they aren't doing interesting things. Netflix is up there in previous books I've written about. Quantcast, but those are all very large companies, although Quantcast is, is a definitely a smaller one. I would say that, um, and I wrote a Harvard Business Review piece on this, there's a pretty interesting company called Carvana based out in Phoenix, Arizona, and they used a site called Kaggle to effectively rent data scientists to develop an algorithm. Now, big data may be amorphous and you're not sure if it's going to work. What about spending a relatively small amount of money to get access to some of the brightest minds on the planet and see if it actually does make a difference for your business. So don't think for a minute that you have to be a company the size of Google or Netflix to take advantage of this. Um, there are small companies like Carvana, as I mentioned, that are actually recognizing this and doing something about it and seeing real results. Well, Phil Simon, you are a true gem to be on the show today. And for the audience, please Google Phil um, and buy his books, his most recent the visual organization it's a fascinating uh, book on uh, this next wave of computing. Uh, he contributes to so many different things, so keep your eyes out for another Harvard Business Review or, or any type of contemporary media that, uh, that covers new technology. Bill Simon, I want to thank you again for being on Marketing. Larry, thank you for having me. And everybody out there, uh, make sure you check out the latest podcast, which this, Phil Simon, is available on Tuesdays uh, at 12 o'clock Eastern Time in the United States. And until next time, this is Larry Weber from Market Edge. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program 
are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.